before I uh, get into uh, counseling and the doctrine of sin, I wanted to uh, make a quick plug about our annual conference. Pastor Glenn mentioned something about that earlier. Um, I just want you all to know that you're welcome there. We're really excited about the conference. The annual conference is called uh, The Gospel and Mental Illness. Uh, that's uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, October 6th, 7th, and 8th. I think that's right. It's the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of October. Uh, during the day on Monday, uh, we're having counseling and medical issues as our pre-conference, and we've got several medical doctors who are ACBC certified who are going to spend the day explaining how we engage in biblical counseling with uh, serious counseling cases that have a medical element. And so uh, that's, uh, that's going to be really important. When we start the the annual conference on Monday night. Um, it will be at uh, the pre-conference and the annual conference are going to be at Grace Community Church. We're really looking forward to that. In fact, every time I go someplace, people are saying, oh, I'm really trying to finish up certification because I want to walk across the stage at Grace when I uh, get certified. So uh, we've got a lot of people that are excited about that. Um, so uh, three days on the gospel and mental illness. And what we want to do is explain to the church how they should think about this problem that our culture refers to as mental illness and what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, Monday night, David Pallison will kick us off, and his talk is called uh, The Gospel and Mental Illness. Uh, On Tuesday, uh, Dr. MacArthur is going to preach in the morning and the evening uh, a two-part message. Uh, Tuesday morning is, uh, uh, let's see, um, what is it? Now that I'm up here in front of you, I can't remember what it is. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to be good. That's right. It's, uh, so it's something like a commitment to truth in a culture of mental illness, part one and part two. Um, and then I preach in the middle of the day on Tuesday, and then the title of my address is uh, uh, Brothers, We Are Not Therapists, uh, The Future of Biblical Counseling in a Culture of Mental Illness. And then on Wednesday, uh, Charlie Hodges, uh, one of our ACBC medical doctors, is going to preach on what's medical about mental illness. And then on Wednesday afternoon, uh, Dr. Bob Somerville, who's a professor at uh, the Master's College um, and one of our ACBC board members and fellows, he's going to preach on uh, the book of Philippians, and his address is entitled The Pauline Model of Mental Health. Um, And it is a very different model of mental health than what our culture encourages us. Uh, And then after that, we've got about 75 different breakout sessions that you can attend uh, all on the topic. And we even have, in fact, I just had a meeting before I I came here uh, about several different surprises that we have worked out for everybody. So I can't tell you what those are. It would stop being a surprise. But uh, uh, but we're really excited about a couple of uh, uh, extra special things that we have for people um, at the conference this year. If you go to biblicalcounseling.com, you can register and get more information about hotels and airports and that kind of thing, Um, but I really hope you'll join us out there for the annual conference um, on uh, the gospel and mental illness. We're having this topic because I've I've shared with a few of you in conversations, uh, there's all kinds of things that you could do an annual conference on, and in fact, we're we're right now in the middle of planning our uh, uh, 
2015 annual conference because of the way these things work, you've got to stay pretty far ahead. Uh, so right now we're planning two annual conferences, and there's all kinds of things that uh, you could have an annual conference about. But we think it's important to have this annual conference on this topic because one of the persistent issues that the biblical counseling movement has to address is um, that what the Bible deals with is more than just the small print of problems, but that we can understand the most significant problems that people have in counseling. And so we're excited about the opportunity to spend three whole days uh, devoted to this and hope you'll uh, want to come and be a part of that. My uh, topic, though, for this afternoon is counseling and the doctrine of sin. And I just want to, as we begin, uh, draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, uh, which uh, says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Same thing in James 4, same, things, uh, same thing a few places in Proverbs. But um, that phrase, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now stick that in your mind for a moment, and then uh, we'll come back to it. Right now, I want to say that I think sin is on the table in counseling in three different ways. So we will, we will deal with counselees who are struggling with sin, and we will struggle with sin in three different ways that are relevant for counseling. First of all, we'll deal with counselees who are guilty of personal sin. We'll deal with counselees who are guilty of personal sin. Secondly, we will deal with counselees who have experienced sin at the hands of someone who, have wrong, who has wronged them. We'll, we'll deal with counselees who have experienced sin at the hands of someone who has wronged them. And then three, we'll deal with counselees who are experiencing the consequences of sin in a fallen world. We'll deal with counselees who are experiencing the consequences of sin in a fallen world. But we have to confess, not because we're part of the biblical counseling movement, but as a matter of biblical fidelity, we have to confess that all counseling has at the core sin. Not in the simplistic way that the biblical counseling movement gets accused of, oh, all we're doing is going on a sin hunt and we're trying to find some place to rebuke somebody. But in that complex way that I just explained. Sometimes sin is on the table because you did something. Sometimes sin is on the table because someone did something to you. And sometimes sin is on the table because Adam consigned all of us to a culture of death. But those are the three ways... Um, that sin will be on the table in counseling. And one of those three things, or a combination, will be on the table in every single counseling setting. And what we need to do is figure out what the counseling solution is, the biblical counseling solution is, to each of those three things. And that's what I want to do in our brief time together this afternoon. What is the biblical counseling solution 
when you are guilty of personal sin? Well, the biblical counseling solution, it's not the popular solution, but it's God's solution, is in a verse, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The biblical counseling solution to sin when a counselee is guilty is to confess the sin. To confess the sin to God, to confess the sin to anybody who's been impacted by the sin, and then to forsake it. And that's when you get mercy. I was uh, in my second pastoral ministry, and I had had a hard day. The uh, pastor, um, the three pastors who had preceded me had uh, been corrupt men, sexually immoral, financially. Uh, they had exerted malfeasance with the church books, and there's just all kinds of stuff to dig out of. And um, on. Uh, I was trying to deal with all that, and the staff was shaken because there had been women on the staff who had been sexually assaulted by the previous pastor, and I was trying to deal with all of that, and I had a really hard day when uh, one of the former staff members who was still uh, in the church um, uh, exposed himself to a 14-year-old boy in the congregation and propositioned him for a sexual encounter in the bathroom at the church. And this was a disaster in a hundred different ways. I mean, in a hundred different ways. And there was even a connection with the news media. And so I'm just bracing that our church is going to be on the local news in a way that you don't want your church in the local news. And I was dealing with all that. And uh, the church secretary was heartbroken over this and was sobbing. It was just, it was a wildfire of ministry. And um, I had... uh, Skipped lunch that particular day. Hadn't been had the opportunity to talk to Lauren uh, that particular day. I was on the way home. It's a four-minute drive from our church that I was serving to our house. And uh, I just was stressed out and frustrated and annoyed and all the rest. And I came in to the back door of the house and dinner wasn't ready. waiting for you to feel the weight of that problem. It usually was, but it wasn't today. Uh, Carson, who was, he's about to turn nine, but he was a little eight-month-old guy at that point. He was screaming in his chair. And my wife, who is dear and precious and cute, was standing at the stove, and uh, as I walked in to the house, I bumped into a garbage bag that was sitting right there at the door. And she said, oh, honey, I put a bag of garbage by the door. Would you take it out? And I snapped. And I said, sure. Sure, I, I would love to take out the garbage. Since dinner's not ready... And the kid's screaming, I'd love to take out the garbage. 
And I extended my arm and I dropped my briefcase so that it would smack on the ground. And I yanked up the garbage bag and with all of my effort, I was flinging it in the door. I tromped out on the deck, picked up the garbage can, slammed it in there, slammed it closed, came back. Is there anything else you want me to do after the day I've had? And my wife, who is gracious, but a sinner, (laughs) and Italian, (laughs) just saying, all right? Don't kill the messenger, all right? She's one, her grandparents came over on the boat, and she's a, her, she is a good Italian woman. That was the big conflict when we got married, by the way. Two weeks before we're getting married, my mother, my future mother-in-law at the time, she's like, why can't his last name just end in an I? This was a big deal. But so my gracious wife, who is yet a sinner and Italian, she said, yeah, I've got some other things for you to do. And we were off and full-blown marital moment, as we uh, have come to call them in our house. And after the dust settled, there was all kinds of things that I needed to do in the midst of that. And it was a hard day, and nobody's trying to say it wasn't a hard day. And, you know, it's not every day that you miss a couple of meals and you're dealing with the former minister who's exposed himself in the restroom at your church. But all that notwithstanding, I sinned against my wife. And uh, we, uh, we chuckle about it, and the way I tell the story kind of brings that out in you. But here's the dirty little secret, that if I don't have a redeemer, I go to hell forever for the way I treated my wife that afternoon. If I do nothing else wrong, before that or after that, I'm in hell forever for that episode right there. And I need to confess it. I needed to confess it to the Lord. I needed to confess it to my wife. And what we have done since early in our marriage and what we teach other people to do is to try to cover the bases uh, of a biblical confession. We want to say, I did it. I I spoke unkindly to you. I was harsh with you and unkind. And it was sinful. And... I am sorry, will you please forgive me? If we had more time, I'd explain the biblical basis of each of those four statements and why I think they're each necessary. Even if you don't verbalize each one of them, the sentiment needs to be there. Uh, but, But ever how we do it, biblical confessions are hard. It's hard to fess up, which is an abbreviation of confess, It's hard to fess up to the Lord and to those we've wronged that we were wrong. You know, in marriage, this is the hardest thing I have to do. If my wife were, I think she'd say it's the hardest thing she has to do. Because your flesh pushes against this. It's like swallowing a thumbtack sandwich. I did it and it was wrong and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? But the Bible tells us that this is the way of mercy, is to confess the sin. The way we deal with guilty sinners in counseling is we get them to confess their sin. We get them to say it to the Lord and to everybody else they've wronged, and we get them to believe that they need to say it. Sin also 
shows up in counseling when we experience the sin of others. When we experience the sin of others. That is when other people do wrong things to us through no fault of our own. What's the biblical counseling solution to this? Well, it's in Matthew chapter 18 and about a hundred other places. But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has just, in verses 15 to 20, talked about what uh, church history is referred to as the gospel steps, the three phases of engaging an unrepentant brother. And then Peter chimes up, as he's wont to do, in verse 21. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. The biblical counseling solution when we experience sin at the hands of someone else is forgiveness. Our summons to those people is you must forgive. This is the most expansive teaching on forgiveness in the Bible. I don't think there's any more space attributed to it in any one spot than it is here. But the Bible's full of this. You might say the New Testament is obsessed with this idea of forgiveness. We are exhorted again and again and again and again and again to forgive as we have been forgiven. You look at this passage of the unforgiving servant and you wonder, what was wrong with the guy who wouldn't forgive? What was his problem? And when you pay attention to the story, it's clear that his problem was he was thinking about what he was owed, what had happened to him, and he was not thinking about how much he'd been forgiven. What I'm getting ready to say, I think, is one of the most controversial teachings in the New Testament, so brace yourself. But this is true, and on the authority of this passage and a million others, I would say, you show me somebody who will not forgive and I will show you an arrogant person who does not realize all that they have been forgiven. And it doesn't matter what anybody else has done to you. If you don't forgive, it's because you have no category for how much the Lord has forgiven you. My mother was a drunk until I was 13. 
she uh, mercilessly beat me and my twin brother. It was a daily occurrence. We were in foster homes and uh, the police were in our house. Uh, I just don't, I have no good memories of my mother uh, until I was a teenager. She was the most violent and awful woman I've ever personally known. Um, She was uh, promiscuous and unfaithful against my father. She kicked him out of the house on Christmas night for another man who wound up not wanting her. Uh, And she didn't want my dad back after that, and we were alone with her after that. And the years were hard. Um, As I said, there's no good memories with my mom uh, up until I was a teenager. Up until my 20s, I have no good memories uh, with my mom. I became a Christian my freshman year of high school. And uh, a year after that, I was home from school as a sophomore, and uh, I was reading Matthew 18. I don't remember reading Matthew 18 before that afternoon in my uh, living room. And as I laid there reading Matthew 18, I was doing it as a 15-year-old high school student who hated his mother. Hated her. And I read Matthew 18, and it is the first and the only time in my Christian life when I experienced that Jesus was taking something that belonged to me. Because the hatred that I had for my mother, folks, was mine. It was mine. And she deserved it. What mom treats your kid this way? She deserves for me to hate her. And then Jesus skips up. And he says, you have to forgive your brother from the heart. And I knew what he wanted, and I didn't want to give it to him. And it took me a year. It took me a year of praying and talking with people I trusted to finally be able to just commit that, okay, I'm going to do this. I don't even know what it means. But it took me a year to say, whatever it means, I'm going to forgive my mom. And what I had at that point was I was going to be nice to her. She was not nice to me. I was not nice to her. But whatever it means, I'm going to be nice to her. And then I grew in wisdom and knowledge, and I was able to figure out more of what forgiveness meant. And I'll tell you, this is, this is a longer story that I'll keep short here. Um, but uh, starting at that point, uh, I began to be kind to my mother. And my mom began to soften she began to be nice a little bit. And she began to soften a little bit more. And uh, then she would start to listen when I would talk about the gospel. Then she would start to ask questions about the gospel. And uh, 13 years later, my mom, who was as hardened as any sinner I've ever known, got on her knees and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive her. And I'm telling you, when, when we're all in heaven together and you have the opportunity to meet my mom, you're going to find out that it was this idea of forgiveness that the Lord used to start to soften her heart so she could receive and request his forgiveness of her sins. We didn't know uh, that she became a believer five years before she would die. She died several years ago of cancer. Um, got a six-month uh, prognosis and lived four Uh, But those last five years of her life were sweet and wonderful. Uh, And uh, she became a godly woman. 
she became a godly grandmother and a godly mom and a godly mother-in-law. The Lord really changed her. And it was this idea of forgiveness uh, that did it. I, I, the Lord worked in me and changed my heart to be able to forgive her, and that softened her heart so she could be forgiven. The biblical counseling solution when we have experienced the sin of others is forgiveness. I tell you that story not to be gratuitous, but so that you'll know that I'm not saying it like it's some easy thing. It's not my experience that this is an easy thing. It's my experience that this is a required thing and that there's grace for you to do it. We'll also experience sin when we deal with counselees who are experiencing sin in a fallen world because of the sin of Adam. These are the people who are in counseling not because they've done anything and not because anybody they know did something to them, but because we live in a broken world where people die, where people get sick, where the devil harasses and harangues people, where the world is a persistent enemy urging you to uh, follow its desires and its ways where false prophets say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's the world we live in, and people suffer because of that. What's the biblical counseling solution to that manifestation of sin? Well, we actually actually already heard what the solution is when uh, Tim Pasma spoke about the sufficiency of Christ but in a verse, it's Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know what the biblical counseling solution is to the experience of sin in a sinful world? Is you have to trust the Lord. That's the biblical counseling solution. You have to trust God. I'm so thankful for Jerry Bridges' gift to the church in his book, Trusting God. It is a true classic. It's probably one of, if not my very most recommended counseling resource. Because we're dealing with people who are broken and busted up, and sometimes we don't know the answer. And God says, trust me. You have to trust me. I'll tell you. Story to illustrate this one, my... uh, my father died two years ago. It's, it's funny because he was the, uh, my mom was the most awful woman. Before she got saved, she was the most awful woman I ever met. And my dad was the most gracious man I ever met. Uh, I never knew anyone kinder than my father. And it's the thing, it's one of the providences of God that kept me from being a maniac, uh, because in the midst of my crazy mom, I had, had episodes with my dad. I wasn't with him very much growing up. But when I was, he was normal and godly. Or he wasn't godly, actually. He was kind, uh, sweet, gentle man. And uh, my uh, family was at his house uh, two summers ago playing. He was bouncing the kids on his knee. We're having a blast. I had such a great time. We were going to come back in two weeks. And uh, he said, son, I love you. He gave me a kiss on the cheek. I gave him a kiss on the cheek. I said, I'll see you in two weeks. That was Saturday. I got a call on Tuesday 
from my brother that um, my dad was at work and had fallen over. And, uh, paramedics at his he works at he worked at Toyota Motor Manufacturing in Kentucky, and they had worked on him for 20 minutes, and he was taken to the hospital unresponsive. And my dad would sometimes do silly, stupid stuff. And I'm thinking, what did my dad do? I was working at my desk, and I kind of put some stuff up, put it in my briefcase, thinking I'm going to have to go to the hospital and probably do some work in a waiting room someplace. And I got to my office door, and I thought, 20 minutes? This isn't going to end well. And uh, as it turns out, my dad had had a heart attack and died instantly. Massive heart attack. His assistant handed him a piece of paper. He smiled at her and said, thank you. She turned around, heard a funny noise, turned back, and he was slumped over dead. Like that. Massive heart attack. Two weeks before, he'd gotten a clean bill of health after a full physical. I've never been so stunned in my life. And the most painful reality is my dad was not a believer. We had talked about the gospel for years. We'd talked about the gospel. And my dad just didn't get it. He, he was happy to talk about the Bible. He believed in God. But in my life, I never saw any evidence that he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Lord. And my family asked me if I would do the funeral. And I said yes because I didn't know how to say no, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And I um, was in the hotel room the night before the funeral, and my wife and kids were asleep in there, and I was had a little lamp over by the desk trying to figure out what in the world I was going to say to these people tomorrow because I had no comfort. I have a fairly good idea. I don't know details. But I have a fairly good idea of what happened, what my father's experience was. When he died... And I didn't know what to say. And I thought my chest was going to explode. I thought my chest was going to explode. It felt like, you know when you stick a shovel down in the dirt to get out? I felt like someone was doing it to my chest. And I got on my face in the floor, and I had my face buried in a pillow so I wouldn't wake my family up. And uh, I was just appealing to the Lord, Lord, you have to help me. Because if you don't come through for me, I have nothing to, to say or to do here. So please help. And the Lord did what the Lord does. The Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit does. And he reminded me of the Bible. He, uh, he reminded me of two passages. One in Deuteronomy 29. Secret things belong to the Lord, and the things that are revealed belong to us. And he reminded me of Genesis 18. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And I don't know how to articulate to you the comfort that God himself unilaterally administered to me through the remembrance of those passages. And I realized that... God would never be unkind to my father. He doesn't even know how to do it. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who needs the lectures about what kind grace is. God doesn't need my lectures about that. 
God wouldn't, he doesn't even know how to be unkind. He doesn't know how to be ungracious. And so I can trust him with my dad. And Deuteronomy 29, what happened to my dad is not my business. It's not been revealed, so it's not mine. It's secret. The Lord is good, and what happened with my dad is his business. And do you know what? I realized in the middle of the night at the Hampton Inn in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, that I can trust the Lord with that. I really can. There is pain in that trust a little bit. Because if I were God, it would be different. But thank God I'm not God. So I can trust the Lord with that. At the end of the day, when life gets real hard and there's no easy, quick answers and there's nothing to fix, the biblical counseling solution is we have to trust the Lord of heaven and earth who is good and who does good and trust that he's going to make it all sort out in the end. I... uh, Asked you to remember 1 Peter 5 5. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What does that have to do with counseling and the doctrine of sin and what we've been talking about? Well, that is the reality that will keep us from doing each one of these things. The threat to the counseling solution of confession is pride. When that thumbtack sandwich of confession is too painful to squeak it out. And we need to remember God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want to be on the side of mercy and grace, it requires confession. The great threat to the counseling solution of forgiveness is pride. I'm not going to forgive you. I got a list a mile long of all the junk you've done to me. I'm not forgiving you. And ringing in our ears is God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The side of grace, the side of mercy, the side of humility is the side of forgiveness. And the great threat to the counseling solution of trusting the Lord is pride. We shake our fists at God. We tell him what he did was wrong. We tell him he's doing a lousy job of running the universe. And if we were king, it'd be a lot better. And the Bible says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we need to bow our hearts and say, you're the Lord of heaven and earth, and I am not. Here's why this is a big deal. The only problems that you can have the only problems that your counselees can have are in those three categories. I mean, you boil it all down, take away all the details and all the nuance, and biblical counseling is about dealing with sin. It's about confessing your sin. It's about forgiving people of their sin. And it's about trusting the Lord in a world of sin. That's it. It really is that simple and that profound. And here's the big deal. This is killer. Nobody knows it but us. 
Now put that in your pipe and smoke it. Why are we talking about counseling and the doctrine of sin when the title of the conference is Celebrating the Sufficiency of Scripture? Because there is one place that tells you how to deal with the problems that people actually really have. One place. And it is the Bible. This is why it kills me that biblical counselors are on the defense talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. If you want to have a debate, let's talk about the sufficiency of psychology. That's what's insufficient. Psychology is completely worthless to deal with these problems. They have no idea that people need to confess their sin. They have no idea that people need to forgive those who have sinned against them. And they have no idea that there is a good and sovereign God who is orchestrating this thing we call life. And at the end of the day, our only hope in heaven and earth is to trust Him. They don't know it. And we do. I don't say that with any arrogance. I don't say that with any hubris at all. I say that with the weight of a great burden on my shoulders. And I hope you hear it with the weight of a great burden on your shoulders. People flip out when I say this, but I'm going to keep saying it. We're the only ones who can really help people. Really. I hope you know that's true. And I hope hope you're not arrogant about it. We're the only ones who can really help people. That doesn't mean we always do it well. Doesn't mean we don't need to grow in facility. We do. But nobody else understands what we've just been talking about for the last 25 minutes. So, as we, uh, as we go from here, we need to remember that the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and the doctrine of sin go hand in glove. And those two doctrines combine to give us a weighty burden Uh, to go to the world with this message. That when you see sin as the problem, as Jay Adams and everybody else has been saying for decades, that's good news because we got a solution to that problem. And his name is Jesus. And it's by his grace and his grace alone that we can confess our sin, that we can extend the forgiveness we've received to others, and that we can trust a God who would enter into this world of suffering to spare us from ours. So let's pray and ask him for his help as we conclude. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which teaches us what literally nobody else knows. That the problems on the table in counseling are the problems of sin. Ours, others, and Adam's. Father, would you teach us about the grace of Jesus, which is sufficient to deal with each of those. And Father, would you cause us to grow in facility as we minister to others? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.